pray together. Father, we thank you for your great plan of redemption in Christ, a plan that you devised before the foundation of the world, a plan that you executed in the coming of Christ to die and rise again, a plan you caused to happen in our hearts as the Holy Spirit convicted us of sin and drew us to Christ so that many of us in this room or listening online can know the beauty, the joy, the peace of knowing our hearts and souls are right before you now and will be accepted and welcomed by you in heaven later. It's all of your grace. It's all for your glory. And we give you thanks this morning. And we're thankful for the verse that says, if you loved us enough not to spare your own son, but gave him up for us all. How will you not also freely give us all things with him? And so, Lord, um, thank you that we can trust you to meet every single need we have. No matter how big, no matter how many there are, Lord, you know all those needs. You are sufficient for all those needs. And Lord, I pray that you'd grant us greater faith to trust you for those needs as the future unfolds in front of us. I pray for anyone who has never experienced your mercy and grace in Christ, that even today they would see their need for a Savior. They would see that Jesus is the only one who is sufficient to be a Savior, and that they would put their trust and hope in him alone. Father, I pray that you would draw near now as we open your word. Would you show us wonderful things from it? Would you give us more faith to believe what we see and hear? In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Years ago, I asked an adult Sunday school class if anyone had ever started a project that they didn't get around to finishing and just about everyone had an example of a home improvement project or a craft project or something else that they had begun and had not yet completed. Does God ever start something he doesn't finish? And we know the right answer in our head, but our hearts are sometimes slow to believe. Our text for today reminds us that the Lord always accomplishes his purposes for us. If you have your Bible, please turn with me to Psalm 138. Psalm 138. The psalm starts by looking back with thankfulness to God, verse 1 through 3. <clears throat> I will give you thanks with all my heart. I will sing praises to you before the gods. I will bow down towards your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your loving kindness and your truth. For you have magnified your word according to all your name. On the day I called, you answered me. You made me bold with strength in my soul. So these verses are some responses to God 
and some reasons for those responses. First, we see heartfelt thanksgiving. David is not content with mild gratitude or just lukewarm thanks. He wants to give thanks to the Lord with his whole heart. And so you think of Psalm 103 where David says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. He also sings praises before the little g gods and those who worship them. So apparently David is in a place that's full of idols and those who follow them. And he says, that won't stop me from expressing my praise to God in song. David will also bow down as a physical gesture of his reverence for God and give thanks to God for his loving kindness and truth or his steadfast love and faithfulness. So what prompted this response of heartfelt thanks and unashamed praise and reverent worship? And the last phrase of verse 2 explains the reason. It's connected with for or because you have magnified your word according to all your name. Or the alternate reading is you have magnified your promise together with your name. And that seems to be connected with verse 3. On the day I called you answered me and made me bold with strength in my soul. So putting all that together, David prayed for strength because he had a need. God answered that prayer and gave him strength in his soul according to a promise, possibly one like Deuteronomy 33:25. As your days, your strength will be in measure. You'll have enough strength for Monday that you need for Monday. You don't have it yet. You have Sunday's strength for today. You'll get more tomorrow for Monday. You'll get Tuesday's strength for Tuesday, and so on. So as your days, your strength will be in measure. That's a promise from God. David prayed according to some promises. God answered that, and now he's giving thanks that God came through for him. And maybe you've experienced something similar. You wanted to talk to a relative or someone else about Christ. That's intimidating. Or you needed to have a potentially uncomfortable conversation with someone. Could go south very easily. When you were facing some kind of challenging trial and you felt weak, you felt inadequate to handle this situation. And so you prayed. What else are you going to do? You can't do it yourself. So you prayed. And God, in faithfulness to his promises, came through and strengthened your soul. He made you bold with strength and enabled you to say what needed to be said. Or he gave you strength to endure that trial better than you thought you could get through it. And so you, like David, can look back with thankfulness to God. The rest of the psalm is about looking ahead with confidence in God. So Psalm 138, verse 4. All the kings of the earth will give thanks to you, O Lord, when they have heard the words of your mouth. And they will sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. For though the Lord is exalted, yet he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Peter tells us in Acts chapter 2 that David was a prophet. And in these verses, David is announcing that a day will come when all the world's kings will give thanks to God. When will that take place? He tells us it will happen when they have heard the words of God's mouth. In other words, they hear the truth of God's word and they learn of God's ways and see how great his glory is. And part of what makes God glorious is how he deals with both the humble and the proud. 
He has a special regard or a special concern for the lowly, but he knows the haughty, which means people who regard themselves as superior to others from a distance. It's very similar to what we see in James chapter 4, verse 6. He gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So David is confident that God will reveal his word and his glory to all the kings of the earth and that they will respond by giving him thanks and singing of his ways. And Lord willing, two weeks from today, we'll be in Psalm 66 and see why that's so certain. Because that sounds pretty optimistic. Say all the kings will give thanks to God. Doesn't look like that's happening right now. And so we'll look at Psalm 66 and the certainty of verses like that in the Bible happening. Well, after that big picture of looking at the future, David touches on three things he is confident the Lord will do for him personally in the future. First, in verse 7, Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you will revive me. So David assumes he will not be exempt from troubles in the future. He's realistic enough to know he'll probably find himself walking in the midst of them. But he also knows that when trouble comes, the Lord will revive him. Revive is the idea of reinvigorating with fresh life, restoring strength, or renewing energy. Your version might have preserve life instead of giving new life. But notice that David isn't saying, after you deliver me from my troubles and things get back to normal again, then I'll feel restored. Which is probably true. But he says, in the middle of the troubling times, you will renew my strength. When I am weary of dealing with difficulties and I'm tired of all the stress in my life, you will supply me with fresh energy. Just this morning, my quiet time, Isaiah 40, he gives strength to the weary. Those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength or exchange their strength. Their strength's too small. They chain it out for new strength from the Lord. You don't have to wait till the trouble's over to get that strength and renewed energy. You can get it in the middle of the trouble. That's what David is saying. He's counting on the Lord to do for him. So he's not anxious about future troubles. He knows they're going to come, but he's confident the Lord will be with him and actively reviving him whatever trouble might come his way. Second part of verse 7. You will stretch forth your hand against the wrath of my enemies and your right hand will save me or deliver me. So David is also realistic enough to expect he's still going to have some enemies to deal with in the future. He assumes there will always be people in his life who oppose him and don't like him and don't get along with him. Just a couple weeks ago, a brother from church was telling me about a guy at work who has an out for him. That was the phrase he used. He has an out for me. And we know what that means, right? Someone's against me. Someone's trying to make my life difficult, hard to get along with. So we all have somebody like that, if not now, probably in the future. But even though those kind of people are always going to be a given for us, David is confident the Lord will rescue him from his enemies and keep him safe from ultimate harm. It's the same kind of confidence he expresses in Psalm 27. If you want to turn to those verses, Psalm 27. 
Psalm 27, 1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? When evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh, they want to eat me alive, my avatars and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. Though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. Though war rise up against me, in spite of this, I shall be confident. So his hope is not, I'll never have enemies, I'll never have problems, I'll have everybody against me. His hope is, and confidence is, no matter what happens, God's going to be with me and protect me. And earlier in the song, again, in God's providence, if God is for us, who can be against us? So he's confident. David is confident that the Lord will revive him when trouble comes. He's confident the Lord will protect him when enemies come. And he is also confident the Lord will take care of everything else that concerns him in the future. Look at verse 8. The Lord will accomplish what concerns me. Your loving kindness, O Lord, is everlasting. Do not forsake the work of your hands. ESV has the Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. King James has the Lord will perfect that which concerns me. Or in Psalm 57, verse 2, David prays, I will cry to God most high, to God who accomplishes all things for me. The word accomplish means to bring to pass, to perform, to bring to completion. Remember we saw last week in Psalm 139, God has a sovereign plan for every single day of our lives. Psalm 139 verse 16. He has ordained every event every circumstance, every detail of every day for every one of us. Well, it's one thing to have plans. We talked about that last week. We can have all kinds of plans. The question is, are those plans going to happen or not? And this verse is assuring us that God will bring about all of his plans for us. He does not leave anything undone in our lives that he intends to happen. There is nothing he should be doing right now that he is not already doing. He will take care of everything that concerns us. All his sovereign purposes for my life will be perfectly carried out. As God says in Isaiah 46.10, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. Not just most of them. Most of us would be content with, I got most of my purposes accomplished on the weekend or this week or that's a pretty good, that's a win. Got most of it. God says, I'll get all of it done. All my purposes will be accomplished. So let's look at some examples. We'll just start with the example of David's life. God had promised David would become king of Israel. But as you read through his biography in 1 Samuel, you see so many obstacles and so many discouraging setbacks. You might wonder, how is that ever going to happen? And David himself had his own doubts about it some days. For example, in 1 Samuel 27, you don't have to turn to it, but there was a day where he said, then David said to himself, literally in his heart, now I will perish one day by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me to do than escape into the land of the Philistines. So David wasn't saying, oh, I know I'm going to be king. I know Saul will be taken out. I know all this is going to come out just great. He's saying, I'm going to die. <laughs> 
if I don't get out of here. Saul's going to kill me. And so this wasn't just obvious to David. It wasn't like David ever said, oh, I can clearly see the whole path from being a shepherd to being a king, and there are no speed bumps along the way. It's just smooth sailing. It's all, you know, rainbows and unicorns or whatever the phrase is. It's just going to be great. It's like one problem, one setback, one disappointment, one obstacle after another, so that some days it seemed unlikely, if not impossible. But when he's thinking more clearly and prevailing in the fight of faith, he says, verse 8, the Lord will accomplish what concerns me, including the Lord himself will bring me to the throne in spite of all these obstacles that are standing in the way. And of course, he found out, and we find out, that God fulfilled that purpose for David's life. He does become king just like God intended. And so David could look back and say with Job, I know, O Lord, that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted or frustrated. You can get me to the throne in spite of Saul and all the other stuff. That purpose can't not happen. Or think of the life of Joseph. God had given Joseph dreams about his older brothers bowing before him. They all thought that sounded ridiculous, and we are told they hated him even more when he said that because of these bizarre ideas. As the story unfolds, Joseph is sold as a slave in Egypt, and then later uh, thrown into prison on false Charges. So if you're Joseph, how, how are my brothers going to bow down for, before me when I'm a slave in Egypt? That doesn't make sense. And now here I'm in jail. How are my brothers even going to find me here, let alone bow before me as a prisoner? So this isn't making any sense. But as God would have it, <laughs> God brings about a famine. God causes a worldwide famine. He orchestrates Joseph becoming the second in charge in Egypt. He brings his brothers there, and guess what happens? Look at Genesis 42, verse 5. So the sons of Israel came to buy grain among those who were coming, for the famine was in the land of Canaan also. Now Joseph was the ruler over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. Just like God said. Just like Joseph dreamed. So Joseph could never have guessed that's how his dreams would be fulfilled. There's just no way he would have come up with that. His brothers did not see that coming. When they heard about the dream, they didn't go, oh yeah, I, I bet that's how it'll play out. I bet someday, about 17 years from now, there'll be a famine and we'll need to go and Joseph will be in charge and we'll bow before him. That wasn't on the radar. And we wouldn't have figured it out. We didn't know that until we kept reading in Genesis and got to that verse and go, oh, boom, just like God said. And that's how God does everything. Just like he said, that's how it happens. 
And with the benefit of hindsight, Joseph says at the end of the story, you know this verse, it's the equivalent of Romans 8, 28 in the Old Testament. Genesis 50, 20 says, as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Please notice something. It does not say you meant it for evil, but God responded by making lemonade out of your lemons. God is not just reacting here. Something bad happens. Ooh, I got to come up with something to try to pull something good out of this. It says God meant it for good. God designed it for good. He planned it for good all along. It was always his purpose that this would happen. He used your evil intentions to bring about this good outcome he had planned all along. He meant it for good. He perfectly accomplished that good purpose. Well, what about us? It's nice that it worked out for David so well. Nice it worked out for Joseph so well. What about us? What do we do with verse 8? God has a good and wise plan for each of our lives. He will see to it that it's accomplished. So let me give some examples. So just this week, since last Sunday morning service, I talked to three brothers who were telling me about some complicated, challenging, iffy job situations. That's just this week. If I add in the whole month of July, I've talked to at least three other people besides those three brothers this week. So just a lot of uncertainty about jobs and what's happening. And so they're not sure. There's at least six there. They're not sure how this chapter in their career is going to play out or what that next chapter might look like. The future is uncertain, if not unsettling. And verse 8 reminds us that we can rest in the truth that God will accomplish everything that concerns us, including our jobs and our income and everything else. He will cause all things to work together for our ultimate good, just like he promises in Romans 8.28. He will cause all things to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And the same is true about everything else that you and I might be concerned about this morning, about the future. I'm just looking at the room. There's some people going off to college in the fall for the first year. There's a couple that's going off to India pretty soon on a mission for two years. There's lots of things in the future, big things, health things, relational things, something else that might make us wonder, how is this all going to work out? Because I don't know the future. I know I want it to work out. I know how I'd vote for it to work out. But I still have feel a little anxiety about what's going to happen with this, what's going to happen with that, what about that? And this verse is saying we can be confident God will take care of it, and God will take care of us. If we belong to him, he will take care of us. He'll do it in the best way possible. So here's a quote from John 
Flavel or Flavel, and nobody's ever told me how to pronounce it. He's a guy in the 1600s. You do the tweet thing, you, this is a tweet-worthy quote. God is actively engaged in all the interests and concerns of his people, and which is sweet to consider, all that he does proves to be exceedingly beneficial to the saints. Read that again, it's so good. God is actively engaged in all the interests and concerns of his people. Every single concern you have, God's actively engaged in that. And it's sweet to know and consider and remember all that he does will prove to be exceedingly beneficial to you if you're one of his people. Well, God will not only fulfill all of his purposes for my life, he will also accomplish everything necessary for my final salvation. Talked about this a little bit in Sunday school. One of the verses, Philippians 1, 6, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus, if you have ESV, he will bring it to completion. God does not just start our rescue from sin and then leave it up to us to finish it. We would all be doomed if it was up to us to get this done. God doesn't just get the ball rolling and say, okay, it's up to you. God initiates the good work of salvation by his sovereign grace. He sustains it by his preserving grace. And he completes it by his perfecting grace. And that's why we sang, the work which your goodness began, the arm of your strength will what? Complete. Perfect. Get it done. Nothing left undone. We're going to make it all the way home. Because he's committed to that happening. That's his purpose for his people. And so as we close, the big question would be, have you experienced this salvation we're talking about? One way to define salvation is God's complete remedy in Christ for our complete ruin in sin. If God is showing you you need that, acknowledge, I am utterly ruined and undone because of my sin. I have disobeyed and dishonored God. And therefore, I deserve to experience eternal consequences, which is nothing less than endless misery in hell because I'm separated from God forever. The Bible says in Romans 3.23, we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's every single one of us. That's where we all start. And our sins have made a separation between us and our God. Second would be to acknowledge I'm utterly helpless to do anything about this. I can't do anything or offer anything that would remove my guilt and make me acceptable in God's sight. God is holy. I'm not. And that's a barrier, and I can't overcome that barrier. Titus 3.5 says, He saved us, not according to works we have done in our righteousness, but according to His mercy. It's not about what we can do to perform for it. And so third, I trust in Christ as my only hope of salvation. I believe His death on the cross paid the debt of sin. I owe it wasn't his sin, it was my sin that he's dying for. And his resurrection from the dead showed he paid it in full. He accomplished the work of redemption. 
I believe that God will now forgive and accept me because of what Jesus accomplished. This is how Paul says it in Romans 10. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we thank you for that promise. That promise cannot be broken. That if we call on your name, call out to you in faith, renouncing our own righteousness, trusting in Christ's, we will be delivered from our sin and brought into an eternal relationship with you. You have done that for many in this room. I pray that you would do it for any who don't know you yet. And for those who are your children because of your sheer grace, (laughs) thank you that you promised to preserve us in faith. You will finish the work you began. You will keep us in Christ forever. And thank you that until we get home, Lord, you have promised to take care of everything for us. You'll take care of every need. You'll accomplish everything that concerns us. We don't have to be fearful about the future because we have you. And so we want to rest in that. Lord, would you cause us to experience that peace that passes understanding from knowing you have our futures in your hands. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to stand and